0: Hello, everybody. I'm John Marzalek, a host for the podcast, Queer Voices of the South, a LGBTQ studies channel podcast of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking to Greg Burke about his new book, Gay, Catholic, and American, published by University of Notre Dame Press. In this compelling and deeply affecting memoir, Greg Burke recounts growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, and living as a gay Catholic. The book describes Burke's early struggles for acceptance as an out gay man living in the South during the 1980s and 90s, his unplanned transformation into an unspoken gay rights activist after being dismissed as a troop leader from the Boy Scouts of America in 2012, and his historic role as one of the named defendants in the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision Ogre v. Hodges, which legalized same-sex marriage nationwide in 2015. After being ousted by the Boy Scouts of America, former Scoutmaster Burke became a leader in the movement to amend anti-gay BSA membership policies. The Archdiocese of Louisville, because of its vigorous opposition to marriage equality, blocked Burke's return to leadership, despite his impeccable long-term record as a distinguished Boy Scout leader. But while making their home in Louisville, Burke and his husband, Michael de Leon, have been active members at Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church for more than three decades, and their family includes two adopted children who attended Lord's School and were brought up in the faith. Over many years and challenges, this couple has managed to navigate the choppy waters of being openly gay while integrating into the fabric of their parish life community. Burke is unapologetically Catholic, and his faith provides the framework for this inspiring story of how the Burke De Leon family struggled to overcome anti-gay discrimination by both the BSA and the Catholic Church, and fought to legalize same-sex marriage across the country. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me today. I'm excited about having you here. Um, I wondered if you could begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Right. Well, I I think you got some of the cliff notes in in that description of the book. It did tell a little bit of of my life story. Um, I'm a native of of Louisville, Kentucky. I grew up uh, here. I I went to Catholic schools. Also, uh, after that, attended the University of Louisville, the University of Notre Dame, and the University of Kentucky. So had most of my life experiences, you know, in kind of a, a small region, um, you know, kind of circling around the Louisville area. But um, it, it's been quite an interesting journey. Uh, you know, I came out in 1976, so I've been out of the closet for a very long time. I was a sophomore at the University of Louisville when I came out. I was 19 years old. And, you know, there weren't a lot of people that were doing that in 1976. So it's it's been a long, <laughs> long, difficult road at times to kind of um, claim that identity and, you know, protect myself um, as I've moved through the stages of life, you know, to, to make sure that I navigated things as best I could. And, and I think I've done a decent job with that so far.
0: Mm. And, and also, uh, you know, I, I should say that um, you were 2015 Person of the Year. You and your husband were Persons of the Year by the National Catholic Reporter. And um, you were also a Person of the Year for Out Magazine, I believe, in the same year. Right. Uh, I was, uh, let's see, I don't know what they would call
1: that. I was recognized as one of their uh, top, Out 100's top uh, most influential LGBTQ people. This was primarily for the work that was done uh, with Scouts for Equality and uh, my efforts to get the Boy Scouts of America to modify its discriminatory membership policy. So that, that really started in 2012 and 2013. That was, um, that was the period where um, the Boy Scouts ousted me from my role as a, a scoutmaster for um, simply for being openly gay. Their policy did not um, permit that. So they they kind of came after me with a vengeance. And, uh, you know, in response to that, I, I decided that it was time for me to, to get involved and try to do something to change that policy. So I partnered with uh, an organization, as I said, Scouts with Equality, and um, we, we got very Active, I would say, over a couple of year period to try to persuade the Boy Scouts to change their policy. And uh, in fact, they they ultimately did. In, um, in 2013, the Boy Scouts finally modified their, their youth membership policies so they would allow gay adults to be members of the Boy Scouts. And then in 2015, uh, the Boy Scouts finally changed their uh, adult membership policy so that gay men and lesbian women could be could be scout leaders. So, it, you know, it was a long uh, long path in, in a lot of respects, but um, that was what was the impetus for for my getting involved really in activism.
0: Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that because throughout the book, as you talk about becoming an activist. It, and tell me if i'm wrong but it almost comes across like this is not something you ever expected to be an activist.
1: <laughs> well I, I think a lot of people feel that way if you talk to to yeah. people who are activists now they describe mm-hmm. themselves as accidental um you know in my case i wouldn't <laughs> say it was accidental it was kind of thrust upon me uh, i feel yeah. like it was really more of a calling and as you read my book you'll you'll hear a lot of a lot of what i feel like are Callings for me to to do certain things, you know, callings out of my faith to to be active or to to do particular things, and I do feel like that was a calling for me to um, to get engaged with the Boy Scouts and and try to change things and make it better because I you know I wasn't the only one it was personal for me and it it harmed me. Um, but mm-hmm. there was collateral damage, you know. There were a lot of other scouts that that I mentored over the years. Uh, my troop was was damaged by that, and across the country in 2012, in particular 2011 and 2012, the Boy Scouts were on a, on a tear, trying to identify and asked anybody that they thought was. Um, that they thought was gay or lesbian, so it was a it was a very troubling time, very difficult, and I felt like out of that, I was I was kind of forced into a position where somebody had to do something, and and I felt like it needed to be me.
0: Yeah, it, there's an interesting place in the book where you talk about your son, and I, I should say in the book you read about how your your husband and you adopted two two sons, which is um, which was just so wonderful to read about that. And you talk about how one of your sons came to you and said he was interested in being in the Boy Scouts. And you kind of talk about some of your internal dialogue there. Oh, right. Our our youngest, uh, well, I'm sorry, that was would be our
1: oldest son, Isaiah, started at our, our Catholic school. Well, he, he was there from through preschool and kindergarten. But in first grade is, is when the Boy Scouts and the Cub Scouts make their um, active pitches to, to the members of the schools. Mm. So Isaiah went to... Um, the first, it was during the first week of his grade one year at Our Lady of Lourdes. And he came home with a flyer from the Cub Scouts. And he said that he wanted, he wanted to join. Um, At that point, Michael and I, my husband and I talked about it and we really didn't think it was appropriate because we were well aware of the Boy Scouts policy on, um, on being discriminatory. And we were just concerned about the messaging that he might get. And um, we didn't want to have to, have to have him be exposed to that potentially. Um, So we talked him out of it, you know, for grade one. But then at the beginning of his second year, he came home again, the Boy Scouts made another appeal. And, um, and he talked to us about it, he really wanted to do it. So uh, Michael and I kind of grudgingly agreed to, to let him do this. But, uh, what we didn't realize was that when you have a child in cub scouts um you have to have an adult there all the time with your child oh yeah, yeah. so th- that meant that you know michael and or i had to be involved at all of these meetings um so, you know, we, we were kind of forced to get involved as parents. Um, not that we didn't want to be. We were, you know, doing a lot of other things. For example, th- that same year, Michael was a uh, soccer coach for the Lord's uh, first grade team. So and oh, then he did the second grade, too. So, yeah. you know, we were involved in a lot of other other ministries and did other things at church, but we just we weren't ready for that. You know, we really didn't think the, the Cub Scouts was going to be the best way for our, our son or or us to spend our time, even though Michael and I were both Boy Scouts growing up. And, you know, we loved the program. You know, we thought it was was very, um, could be very good in terms of, you know, building skills and self-confidence. And um, th- th- there we realized that there were a lot of ven- benefits to it, but we were just really reluctant about letting our child start because we didn't know where it was going to go. But, you know, we took a chance and... Um, the rest is in the book.
0: <laughs> the rest is in the book. That's exactly right. The rest is in the book. Yeah, yeah. And and kind of skipping around a little bit, but you tell you tell the story of your experience with the Boy Scouts, and then of course we'll get into as we continue in the interview. But you know your whole experience with the Supreme Court case and the cases leading up to that. But what led you to write this book in the first place?
1: Well, again, I would say it was it was sort of a calling. Um, There is a a scene that I describe, I think, in the book. I'm not sure if you recall it or not. Um, One day I was uh, in church. Michael and I are are regular uh, Mm -hmm. participants at our church. We go every Saturday night. And uh, I was sitting there and there was a particular moment during the mass where I had this sort of um, wake up call or this jolt to attention and yeah. uh, and I do describe it in the book it's it's a kind of a hard thing to sell to people if it hasn't happened to you then you know it, it's a hard thing to buy but something transpired and it really forced me to start reflecting on what I had been through and, and what I might be able to do to kind of tell our story in a way that I think would be compelling to people and, and might help change some, some hearts and minds, um, particularly in the Catholic community where there has been so much um, mm-hmm. you know, just so, so much ne- negativity and uh, marginalization of the LGBT community, you know, I really feel like we need to um, kind of change the narrative in our church. And I was hopeful that, that writing this book would help, kind of move that discussion in a different way.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there's a there's a place. I think it's towards the end when you talk about this, you know, your decision to write the book, that you um, you say that you wanted as you wrote the book, you said you admitted much of the controversial and I think you said painful material, and I not asking you to re- uh, reveal what that was about, but I wondered what you meant there when you said that.
1: You know, I, I, th- I think it's possible to tell a story without telling every detail. Um, yeah, a couple of places in, in the book, I think I alluded to the fact that I'm um, like every other creature that God put on this planet. You know, I've had challenges and temptations and I've done things that I regret. I've had things happen to me that, you know, are embarrassing that I, you know, don't want to share with other people. And so those are deeply personal things that I don't think were really particularly relevant to the story because, the story I mean, talking. if you read the story, I think you can tell I'm pretty much burying everything I've got. Um, you are. You are. Memoir. And a lot of it is very emotional. A lot of it was extremely difficult. You can't, excuse me, can't imagine some of the, um, some of the emotion that, that I felt and the things that I went through um, in, in terms of being forced to leave my position at the Boy Scouts. And I'll tell you, it was very contentious. And, and this is kind of one of the things that I, I was alluding to is that mm-hmm. people can be very ugly um, yeah. and were very ugly and very threatening at times. And, I, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily I didn't want to tell the story as if I was a victim because I feel like the story of my life is one of perseverance and um, overcoming these various obstacles that have been put in front of me. And so what, I guess what I meant to say was, it was probably harder than I, <laughs> that I made it sound at times, um, because there's just a lot of bad stuff that's happened. But, yeah, you know, in yeah. the end, in the end, You know um the boy scouts have changed their policies we now have marriage equality you know things are are shaking up in the catholic church i mean there's just been just a lot of progress and so i I don't want to have anybody think of me as a victim along the way certainly things have happened Mm -hmm. to me and you can you know again they're in the book um and and people can can read about those and make judgments if they choose to do so but I, i as a as a catholic and a christian um do not want to Cast judgment on on any parties, including people who might have done me wrong in the past
0: mm. and I, you know as I was reading the book, it really I kept thinking to myself, it was really like somebody like reading somebody 's personal journal because the way you wrote and I, and I I was impressed how you did that because it, it sounds like you went back and re wrote this story after it occurred, but it read like it would had been happened. you were writing a journal after each day that something happened. Right. And
1: I did not. Um, so it was very reflective and after the fact. But um, what I tried to do was to put myself in the mindset of whatever period I was I was in, I kind of put on blinders and I wasn't, I, I was writing as if I didn't know what was going to happen, you know, six months or a year or two years yeah. or three years later. it was like I was gonna, addressing what was happening at that time and where I was and, and what was going on in the world, what our children were dealing with, what our relationship was dealing with. Um, I thought that was kind of the best way to describe it. And you know, a lot of that I think is really important because, um, you know, I am of a generation that that lost um, just a phenomenal number of people to the HIV AIDS crisis. Yeah, yeah. And they're, you know, sure, there are plenty of survivors, but you know, Michael and I were together even before that started. So, you know, we lived through all of that, where we saw friends and and um, oh my gosh, it was just dying everywhere uh, and suffering. It was just so sad. So, um, I think it was important to kind of go back and put myself into those different periods in time. You know, the the early '80s when like Michael and I met and we just started our relationship. I think I talked quite a bit about that, you know, and then as we kind of progressed through, through the different phases of our life as, you know, having, you know, being young people in in a relationship and moving and, um, you know, going through some of the challenges related to work and then deciding to become parents. I mean, um, there are many phases that we've been through in our life and, you know, there are a, a lot of Gay couples or lesbian couples, for that matter, who, who can say that they've been through that um, that experience for this length of time, you know, with mm-hmm. you know, everything we've been through, um, you know, from the early 80s to here we are in 2001. Michael and I will celebrate 40 years together next year.
0: Congratulations.
1: <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But yeah. um, it's literally it's been a lifetime we've spent together and we've been through all those different phases and we've seen so much history and so much evolution um over those 40 years it's it's been really remarkable and now you know in the last 10 years uh, or so we seem to have been involved in in some of that history so um Mm -hmm. that was another reason why i really thought it was important to to write this book because i think it's it's helpful for people to um know the story behind some of these landmark um supreme court decisions Mm -hmm. There, there were um a lot more plaintiffs in that case. <clears throat> excuse me. Then, then you may realize there were 37 plaintiffs in a versus versus Hodges, and there are that many stories. Um, so, you know, I just thought that I'm one of the 37. I've got a few things to say, and yeah. I, I thought it was important for me to to commit that uh, as a writer yourself. You know how difficult it can be to write a book. This I'm a first-time right. author, so this was an extreme challenge for me to be disciplined enough to, to get this done while I'm working a full-time job. Right. So, um, it was, it was particularly challenging for me, but I I thought it was important being part of a case like that to at least capture my experience, or I should say our experience, our family's experience. And I would encourage, you know, any of the other plaintiffs who were involved in that case to to write their stories, because I think people would be interested to read those as well.
0: Yeah, it was um, really eye-opening to read about your experience. And one of the things that I appreciated that you talked a little bit about was um, the fear of recrimination at times. Um, I think at one point you said something like, as you were writing about this fear that something could happen... Um, especially during the Supreme Court case, that you, I think you said, a, you felt a little PTSD just writing this, you said. Right. <laughs> it
1: was very yeah. traumatic. As you indicated, um, I did have to go back and put myself through those those times of turmoil in my life. So a lot of it was with the scouts. A lot of it was with um, the, the Supreme Court case. It was very traumatic, not only because we were very unpopular um, when we filed our lawsuit, um, for a variety of reasons. But there was a lot of animosity, you know, and just if you could have read some of the comments on, you know, some of the articles that are local in those days, our local newspaper would publish an article and allow anyone to comment. And if you just could have seen and captured yeah. the hate that was there, it was, it was remarkable. Um, you know, and then just strange things happened that, um, that, that were disturbing. Uh you know with people and and comments and you know things showing up in the mail and you know thank god nothing ever happened to us but you know we were we were always sort of living on the edge and concerned about what might happen and that you know that was one of the things i did describe in the book is i used to lay in bed at night staring at the window wondering if it, there was going to be a, yeah, a, a yeah. brick or a fire b- bomb come through the window while I'm, I'm laying there sleeping and you know what's going to happen to my family um, it it was very traumatic not only to go through that but then to have to go back and, and relive it all again when I was writing it out and then revising it and rewriting it, you know how it goes when you're
0: writing um yeah yeah tough yeah i I think that you really um explain really well what it's like when somebody is l g b t plus and there's that constant fear that somebody's going to um attack them or um, come at them because of who they are. And then it even, it's even multiplied for you because you're front and center in the public eye.
1: Right. And, and even before that, I mean, we were, we were openly gay at our church and we always thought that there was a chance that there could be, um, you know, all it takes is one crazy person to, um, to go off the deep end. And, and, you know, that, that could have been the person that decided to target us or our family. Yeah. And fortunately it didn't happen but that didn't keep us from thinking about it and worrying about it.
0: And then on the other side you you have some really just I imagine must've been really joyous experiences. Um obviously when the I don't know if you could talk about this a little bit what it was like when you and your children were in the Supreme Court when the when the decision was announced right yeah that was uh that was such a great
1: experience for our family yeah I'll start by saying that we were uh, our family was also there on on april twenty eighth of two thousand fifteen for the oral arguments that's right and that yeah. was uh that was a very important day and probably I mean th- there was um, there were so many more plaintiffs there, and there was just so much interest because that was the day the arguments were made. Uh, there was so much demand to get into the court on that day that our children were not able to be seated. So even though our children – Oh, they children...
0: were in the cafeteria, right? Yeah, right. I yeah, you said... uh, yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, for argument day. So um, they were thrilled when we were there on decision day that they were actually – uh, able to ju- enter the court with us and they were able to sit with us and mm-hmm. hear the the decision read and they were part of that they um they were disappointed that they weren't able to join us on oral arguments day but um you know the, the court itself uh, as a space is surprisingly modest for some from someone who's never been there before I, you know i thought mm-hmm. it was going to be more like a, a huge auditorium and, and really it's quite small so there's not there's not unlimited space for seating and, and, you know, there was an order to how it was decided who would be able to, uh, to attend. And um, children, our children couldn't go for oral arguments, but they were, were there on their decision day. And yeah. uh, we had, had a really great family outing. I'll just describe it like that. It was so joyous. It was so exciting. Um, but again, back, back to what we were just talking about, we, we weren't sure that, we were going to win, right? I mean, we thought we were, but we had the narrowest of margins. And you yeah, know, we were yeah. thinking the whole time we were sitting there, It's like, all it would take would be one of those justices to flip and decide that this was going to be just going too far. Um, you know, just two years before that, um, you know, there was the, the Windsor decision and the Prop 8 decisions that were decided yeah, by 5-4 yeah. votes. So again, the narrowest of margins. So as we're sitting there, we're well aware of the fact that all it would take would be one justice to change their mind. Um, and and it was a totally different argument. So it's not even like they were you know, deciding on the same case again. I mean, it was it was a totally yeah, different yeah. case. And it really could have gone either way. And that was something that was weighing on our minds. It weighed on the minds of all the plaintiffs, I can tell you, because we talked about it. It's like the what if, what if we lose? What does that mean? What does that mean for all the people who are already married or who might have been recognized as married by some of the other uh, district and circuit court rulings that had been rolling through the country for the, for the year or so prior to that? Um, right. There was right. just a lot of... of weight and concern on our shoulders so to to be able to go from that to having having justice kennedy stand up and start to read the majority opinion um you know that was just talk about a, a mood swing um we took the elevator right to the top and uh it was a glorious feeling it mm-hmm. was something that I probably will never experience anything like that again in my life. It lasted for a while Um, uh, that day, and even beyond that day, but in particular that day, it was uh, it was pretty remarkable. Unfortunately, um, being in the court, it's like we had to be completely stoic and could not react in any way. Um, the, The court has very strict rules about behavior, and if there would have been any Outburst of any kind, um, that person would have been removed. And you might yeah. recall, you might re- remember back during the oral arguments, there was um, a gentleman who caused a scene during, I do. during I do. the arguments, and he he was physically removed from court. Yeah. So they they take the you know the whole decorum thing very seriously. And so we knew that we had to sit there basically um, and just kind of stare blindly and and not overreact. Um, and you know, kind of wait until we got out of court to have our opportunity to express our joy.
0: Yeah, um, and you and I, I remember reading that you had to go out the back because there were so many people on the steps of the courthouse <laughs> celebrating right. in the front. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, and that was uh, it, we didn't know that, and and I talk about that in the book. It's like we were trying to have, you know, kind of that that moment where the the triumphant plaintiffs walk out the back, of, you know, the steps of the Walk down the steps of the United States Supreme Court, right? And you go down, and there was a sea of people there. There was, uh, you know, an army of, of media that was waiting to talk to us. And you know, we just wanted to go out, out the doors and walk down those steps. And we got there, and um, they wouldn't allow anyone to leave. They and we didn't understand why. We heard someone say something about a bomb threat, and so we were concerned. But, um, but the security. Forces at the Supreme Court, so we, you can't go out the door, You have to go out the side of the building and then walk around the front of the plaza. So, um, so we did that. And the only thing we'd heard at that point was that um, something about there, there was a bomb threat. So we thought, you know, we were being evacuated uh-huh. because there was a bomb threat. And then we got outside, and we were told that no, what happened was when the decision was made known, known public outside, that there was a rush. The people on the plaza kind of rushed the steps. And and so to, um, to regain security in the premises, they, they had to push everybody back down and they were keeping the doors clear. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a wild scene. And then of course we went out, went out to, um, to the plaza, spent uh, a great deal of time talking to the media, talking to the crowd. Um, it was, uh, it was a fantastic experience, just so much joy. And, you know, people ask all the time what that was like. And, and I, I've just, describe it as, it was like winning the gay Super Bowl. That's
0: just the way I felt. Yeah, you said that in the book. Yeah, yeah. My husband and I were married in Maine in 2013, and so we weren't legal in Mississippi, obviously. So when we heard the decision, um, you know, it meant all of a sudden we're legal. So it was like you say in the book, I think every every person who was affected by this remembers where they were standing or what they were doing when this decision came down.
1: Isn't that right? I mean, that maybe it's just me because people talk to me about it all the time. They know I was part of the case. But um, it does seem to me remarkable that when Michael and I talk to um, LGBT people throughout the country, that everybody's got a story about that. I mean, they say, I I remember exactly where I was. I remember who I was with. I remember how I found out. I remember what we did to celebrate. It's just people, it was um, this moment that we all shared that um, was one of, of joy and yeah. this feeling of, oh my gosh, it, you know, it's finally here after all these years we've waited so long for it. Um, and it's a remarkable thing to be able to have been part of of making that happen for so many people.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking, so you, you and your family were in D.C. when... Um... Obama, the Obama White House lit up the White House in rainbow colors,
1: (laughs) right? Yeah, we didn't see it. Um, We were just the day was a whirlwind whirlwind. Um, I think you might remember it. And so we flew into uh, D.C. late that night before Mm -hmm. and we had to get our kids up. You know, we had teenagers, so it was hard enough Had to get our kids up and get them to court by (laughs) seven o'clock. You know, and everybody had to get up and get cleaned up and get dressed and, you know, get ready for the cameras. Um, so we had our, our kids up early that morning. So by, I don't know, seven or eight o'clock, it's like, we were so exhausted, um, having run through just this lengthy day of, uh, activities and interviews and just excitement. I mean, we were beat, so that, you know, I didn't know that the White House was lit up and that Michelle Obama was out there partying with people or we would, we
0: would have been over there if we do. (laughs) Exactly. So um, you got you you got to meet some really interesting people, um, and one of them that really stood out for me was you described your communications with um, Edie Windsor.
1: Right. Yeah, we had we had quite a remarkable um, I would call it a friendship with with Edie. Yeah. Although, you know, we never had a chance to to spend that much time together, but she was a huge cheerleader of ours. We um, Michael and I met Edie at the Out One Hundred Gala. Um,
0: okay, that's right.
1: And, um, you know, we spent an extensive amount of time talking. At that point, when we met her, um, our case was still at the district level. So we were only able to describe ourselves as, you know, the, the Kentucky marriage equality plaintiffs because, you know, we had filed first in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. But um, she was just so excited to hear that the the case um that all of the cases across the country were moving forward and that hers was being used as, you know, kind of the foundation for that and and, um, the precedent. So we had a a splendid evening with her. um, And after that, we carried on, uh, you know, email communications. And she was a, a huge... A fan, I would say, and she was rooting for us to to be successful in our case. You know, I would let her know whenever there were any any developments. At one point, um, you know, I told her we were thinking about coming to New York for a spring break with our kids, and you know, she wanted to have us over and order pizza. Mm-hmm. And it's like I just <laughs> I truly regret that we, that we never had a chance to do that um, because I wish I could have had more time with her. You know, she was such an important person in the history of of LGBTQ uh, rights development. And and, uh, I wish I had more time. But you know what, when you live in Kentucky, it's like you don't get many opportunities to rub elbows with, (laughs) you know, with uh, the movers and shakers in the movement. It's like, you know, where it's like in yeah. the South, yeah. you know, in the South, yeah. it's right. like, you That's know, right. it's, it's totally different in the South. And, you know, about the only time we had opportunities like that was when we went to, um, you know, to New York or another city for an event of that nature. But uh, most of us, I think, are are in our, our little communities and, and towns in the South, doing what we can to, to move things forward and change things. And, you know, it's, it's not the kind of stuff that gets covered in out Magazine or The Advocate, it's but it's, you know, it's important work that we're all doing. And and I think we all need to keep keep that in mind as we keep kind of knocking down some of those barriers and doing the work that we need to do in all of our, our Southern communities as well.
0: Yeah. And I guess kind of going back and forth, but that kind of takes us back to um, your whole experience with the Boy Scouts, because I imagine over the years, um, when you talk about in this book, that the people that you knew locally never you being um, an openly gay man and a in a same-sex marriage didn't seem to be an issue that people um, you know un- they knew about your expertise and your your commitment and your experience in the Boy Scouts.
1: That's absolutely true, especially with with the people at at my parish. So um, the way the Boy Scouts works, uh, every unit has a sponsoring organization and most of those sponsoring organizations are religious organizations so, different types right. of churches. So at, at my church, you know, because Michael and I had been there for so long and we've been openly gay, it's like everybody at Lourdes knew we were gay and they knew our kids because, you know, they'd been through the preschool and the kindergarten and, you know, through the, ver- the various grades. And so everybody had the opportunity to to get to know us and accept us and, you know, um, not have concerns or issues. Another thing that I did talk about in the book, that which I think is important, and, and it seems to be fundamental to scouting, is that Leaders don't grow on trees. Um, usually, leaders are born from a desperate need for somebody to step up and do the job, or the unit's not going to exist anymore. And that's what happened in my case. I, I did not want to become a leader, but um, but our son Isaiah was really enjoying scouting, and um, we had kind of a crisis in leadership, and someone had to um, someone had to step up. And at that, that particular point. I decided i was going to do it um and so i had that kind of dual experience that i Mm -hmm. talked about where i was i was openly gay with our our scout unit i mean they knew the people of our Mm -hmm. church knew but whenever we kind of left the bubble of our church community and did something with the lincoln heritage council the the boy scout council or if we did anything that was like a, a, a Jamboree or uh, you know kind of a, a regional event. Um, it's like the, that's when I had to go back in the closet because I never knew how people were going to react um, when yeah. I got outside of that bubble. So it, it really put me kind of in the closet when I went outside of the Lord's community and I was taking kids to summer camp or you know we were we were going to um, a different scouting event and and I like a merit badge fair or something like that. And I'm taking them. It's like, then I had to be really cautious about how I conducted myself and who knew what. Um, and that was a, that was a difficult kind of, um, relationship to, to manage for me, because as I said, I came out when I was 19 and I've been pretty much out everywhere, you know, with family and work and everything for, for all that time. And so when I, when I got involved as, as a Boy Scout leader, that's when I really had to take a step back and say, okay, for the, for the benefit of, of my son and the troop and everybody else is like, I've got to, I've got to play this cool and just play the, the don't ask, don't tell kind of role as a leader. And, and I did that for a few years, but, um, that's just something that was not sustainable for me. It could be done for a brief period of time, but, um, you know, it wasn't a long-term solution.
0: It must've been exhausting having to do that when you went outside the local area.
1: Well, anybody that's in in the closet or, you know, has to play those kind of games. I think it's exhausting for them. And that's why Mm -hmm. so many people just, you know, tire of it and, and reach that, that breaking point where they say, I'm not going to do this anymore for my own, for my own health, for for my own benefit. Mm -hmm. I I can't do this anymore. And that's really where I was. And that's why I, I felt it was necessary to, um, to talk to the Lincoln Heritage Council and you know try to see where they stood on um, on the subject. And if you read the book, you know that's like that's not the first time I did something like that. I mean, I've gone numerous times to right. Catholic priests and and said, okay, we're joining this parish. Michael and I are a couple. Um, you know, are you okay with that? You know, and so I, I kind of like to to make sure I've got. Clearance and acceptance before I get too invested in things. Um, sure, sure. But um, yeah, th- it was it was similar in many ways with the Boy Scouts. But um, Boy Scouts, you, you know, are a much larger institution. The same way our Ca- the Catholic Church is, is a much larger institution. And within those institutions, you can have uh, pockets of people who are you know, quite progressive, uh, but then you also have people on the other ends who are just the total opposite. And if they have any notion, you know, if they had any notion that there was a a gay scout or a gay leader or a lesbian leader, it's like they were going to flush them out and make sure that they were removed. Um, Mm -hmm. That's the way it was. And the church has the same, similarities uh, in a lot of respects. You've got pockets of the Catholic church that are very welcoming and progressive. Um, I would cite my own parish as, as one of those. Mm -hmm. And then you have other parishes in the same city here in Louisville that have a reputation for being, I think, very, uh, very conservative and, and sometimes even homophobic. So um, it's just really hard to, to reconcile all that variation in an approach in one organization. But, you know, the, the Catholic Church has has had that issue for eons, and they probably will continue to have that issue for quite some time.
0: Yeah, and you really, um, the dissonance in the church really came out um, for me as I read your book. You know, I was thinking about the positive experiences you described with parishioners and um, your involvement um, as a communion minister and other things that you were involved with in the church, but then at the same time, the experience... Um, you know with the archbishop not you know not putting pressure on the local church not to allow you to be a scout leader um and then also that when your design for um a memorial in a cemetery was declined right yeah
1: there were a couple of instances where the archdiocese really took a hard stand with us and, and you you mentioned with the boy scouts i mean i was given a, a hard no that i would not be permitted to return to scouting in 2015 the boy scouts of america changed their policy and said that they would not discriminate anymore but they wouldn't prohibit sponsoring organizations from discriminating if they chose to do so and my archdiocese flatly told me no, you will not be able to return to leadership. Um, and, and then there was the other case that you mentioned, where my husband and I um, we we bought plots in a Catholic cemetery in Louisville. It's the cemetery where all of my family gets buried. Mm-hmm. And in fact, yeah. we're going to be like three rows away from from my parents and you know a host of aunts and uncles. My brother's going to be right next to me. But um, the interesting thing was that when we went to have our our headstone designed. My cousin, who works at, who worked at the uh, um, archdiocese then, told me that they had just implemented a policy that any same-sex couple would have to have their uh, monument approved by the archdiocese. It was a new rule just after marriage equality had been decided upon. And the archdiocese was taking steps, I think, wherever it could to, um, to kind of single out Gay couples or you know same-sex couples to to find ways to discriminate against them. Um, it was it was very disturbing, and you know I try not to dwell too much on on that. Um, there were some some good things that came out of that that I I thought were important. For example, the archdiocese said that we could be buried together. They said that we could have a shared monument. It's just that they refused to let us have certain elements on our tombstone. Um, For example, interlocking wedding rings, because it's a symbol of it's a symbol of marriage, right? But if you go into that cemetery and you look around, I'll tell you, 50% of the married couples that are buried together have those interlocking rings. It's extremely common. So, um, yeah, it was um, it was troubling. So between the Boy Scouts and then those issues, um, you know that that certainly did cause me some concern. But you know, I have to say overall. Those are some important things, but in so many other ways, um, the church has not acted against us. And you know, people ask us all the time, "Why do we stay in this church? You know, why do we stay in a church where um, we're not welcomed or that, you know that, that treats poor uh, people so so poorly and marginalizes folks? Why do we stay?" And you know, I, li- I like to try to turn that around on people and say, "Well," What I want to know is why has the church allowed us to stay? You know, for 34 years, we've been going to this church. And Michael and I have been practicing together for 39 years. But for 34 years, we've been going to this church and we've been openly gay. And at no point have we ever been asked to leave You know, we haven't been denied communion. You know, we haven't been told we couldn't participate in ministries. So they have certainly cashed all of our checks. I can guarantee that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But um, you know, they've they've been really overall welcoming, and they haven't asked us to leave or forced us to leave. So with the bad things that we talked about, I would say that the good things that we have experienced by being members of this faithful community. greatly outweigh any of those negative things. You know, I, I wish I could describe better um, the feeling that Michael and I get when we go to this church. I mean, we we go to church on Saturday night and it's like, it's like walking in to cheers. It's like, we know everybody, everybody knows us, you know, for a half hour before mass starts, everybody's walking around the pews asking them, you know, how was your surgery? You know, how's your son? It's like, it, it's, um you know, it's family time. And that's what I love so much about the Catholic church and in particular, the one that we go to. But I think that so many of them have that characteristic. They are another representation of, of family and it's a family that, you know, we get to share, um, with our faith or in our faith. So anything bad that that's happened to me so far in the Catholic church, it's like, it's nothing compared to all the, the joy and the acceptance, um, you know we have received over the years as being Catholic.
0: Yeah, and you know um, your experience is what seems to be so common for for so many people um, that I've talked to, and I you know I should say that I grew up Catholic also, and um, I don't practice anymore. I, I think I've chosen. You know some people choose to stay in the church like you have, and some people choose to leave and go down other routes. And. I think that, um, I've known so many people like myself who've had the experiences you're describing. Um, and yeah, yeah, I know it's it's a, it's
1: a, well, it's painful to, to stay at times. And I know it's painful to leave. I know a lot of people who have left and, you know, they, they talk about, you know, missing it, missing the, you know, the, the, all the ceremony and, and everything that goes along with it. But, um, but, you know, I wouldn't want anybody to stay someplace where they don't feel welcome. And I wouldn't stay someplace if I didn't feel welcome. If if um, if I was treated, Michael and I were treated poorly at our church, um, you know, we would be finding someplace else to go. But that's never happened. And that's my point is that you know they've never forced us to leave. It's a family. They've team. never even encouraged us to leave. So I I think we just really got lucky with um, with our experience uh, with this particular parish that we've been members of for so long. And um, I just I wish everybody could could find something like that whether it's in the catholic church or in another faith another faith tradition it's um i think it's important to be able to to have that connection you know and other people find ways to 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 make that same connection um you know whether it's you know bowling league or you know pick pick something else but um obviously my faith is important to me you started by reading um that description of the book and um and it, it describes me as being unapologetically religious, and, and I, that's not my term, but I kind of like that because I do feel that way. The same way I'm not going to apologize about being gay because I don't think it's anything to apologize about, I'm not going to apologize for being um, what I think is a, a religious person in my mind and someone who's, who's been faithful and you know kind of lived that life and, and decided that that was important for me. Um, and that's the way I wanted to live my life. So I'm not going to, there's a lot of things, and especially when you get to be my age, it's like, I am just, I'm, I'm not going to apologize about just being who I am because I'm, I'm pretty content with, with where I am and the decisions I've made.
0: Yeah. And, and there's a place in the book where you talk about the importance you see in, in having people to fight from the inside. Right.
1: So that's another thing that, people need to think about is if everybody leaves the church, then what's left? You know, everybody that has an issue with the church, whether you're a, you know, a divorced person or a woman who wants to participate in, in ministries or you're, you're an LGBT person, if, if all of the people who have been marginalized by a lot of the Catholic um, doctrines and policies left, what would that look like? I mean, it, it would not be pretty. Um, so I think it's important to have people there advocating for progress, for inclusion, for equity, for, you know, all the things that we talk about in our greater society that are so important to us as ideals. You know, we need to have people that stay in the church and argue for those same things. And, and that's what we do. You know, it's, it, if Michael and I weren't there for the last 34 years, and we had vacated that space, that could have left room for you know some other you know right wing conservative person to come in, and have the totally opposite effect. So we feel like that at least you know by our being there, um, at the very least we're neutralizing that you know. And and people, as I said, have grown to know us. They love us. They treat us like family. Um, and okay. so, you know, that's why that's one of the reasons why we stay is because, it, you know, it, it helps keep things um, in a place where we think it should be. Um, and again, it's like I just don't if we vacate the space, you know, we, we just give up the war and, you know, bad things happen.
0: Mm-hmm. And that really comes strongly. That really comes through strongly in your book. And I think you said in the beginning of the interview that that was one of your goals to be able to 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 show people that it's possible to um, be queer and be in the church at the same time.
1: Right. Yeah. I think that's important for people to see, see, especially young people when they're starting out. And, um, you know, I've had some experiences with some young folks, some young Catholics uh, here in Louisville, especially, Mm -hmm. and um, have really wanted to give them the impression that you don't have to choose between your identity as a Catholic and your identity as a queer person. That, you can do both um, because, you know, we've been doing it for decades and, you know, it's not easy all the time, but you can do it. So if, if you want to do it, that's an option. You know, life is full of options, especially when you're young. Um, and I just, you know, as an old Catholic person, it's like I feel like I need to encourage people, um, young people to remain in the faith, stay in the faith, um, because the, the church is important to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm we're coming close to the end um the end of our interview but i I wanted to ask you um an important question and that's what is it you you hope that people will take from reading your book well i i think i
1: it it is a story that kind of builds i mean it's not a story it's you know real life but it it's written as a story and you get to the end and um I, I, in the last few pages, I have the opportunity to make what I call my closing argument. And I, I describe our life together, my life together with Michael um, as a couple. And I describe it in terms that is non-gender specific, um, just a couple, you know, they couldn't biologically have children. And, you know, we, so yeah. we adopted and and then, you know, we were involved in our church and we were involved in all these ministries. And, and um, what I wanted to do was to lay the groundwork for people in the Catholic Church um, to think about what gay marriage might look, same-sex marriage might look like in the church. Because a lot of people just, you know, have this block, this mental block, um, because church leadership has been preaching against same-sex marriage for quite some time. And so it's just, they can't accept it. They can't visualize it. They don't know know what to think about it. So I really hope that a lot of Catholics— and not not LGBT Catholics, but Catholics read this book and and they start thinking about that couple that he described there in those last few pages sounds just like a really nice um, straight Catholic couple that I know, you know, or or maybe my children or, you know, whatever it is. But it's like, I I hope that they think about the life that Michael and I've shared together in the church and they start to think there's really nothing wrong with same-sex marriage, and it's something that should be championed by our church. It should be blessed by our church. Um, and you know, I, I don't know, John, John if we're going to see that in my lifetime. I kind of doubt it, but um, a lot of things have happened in my lifetime that I wouldn't have predicted, so I suppose that's still possible. But really, that's, that's what I wanted to do, especially at the end of the book, was just to kind of lay out this picture for Catholics. It's like, give this a thought. This is what it could look like if you had same-sex married people in the church. And I think it's a pretty nice picture.
0: Yeah, you do paint a, you paint a beautiful picture in, in that last chapter. Thank you. Well, Greg, thanks so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you and hearing oh. more about your book.
1: Well, thank you, John. It's been a pleasure talking to you too. I, I certainly hope uh, folks will give my book a try.
0: And to our listeners, if you're interested in reading Gay Catholic and American, click on the highlighted title of the book in the description that's included with this podcast. And you can also go directly to the University of Notre Dame Press website. And join us again next time for Queer Voices of the South on the New Books Network.